Hey, hey, what is good, everyone? You are back with Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I am your host, Max Bowen. Well, for this episode, I welcome back author Jay Lee for his second book in the Ben Siebert series, The Silent Cardinal, available on August 3rd. Now, this sequel to his 2018 book, The Hubley Case, was not planned out. In fact, he only intended to do a one-off with his character, Ben Siebert. And we talk all about how he came to be doing a second book. We look at the character of Ben, how he's grown since the first book, and what makes him tick, as well as just what makes a great villain for a thriller novel. But you want to hear all about it? I know, because so do I. Kick back, relax, and enjoy. Let's start with the upcoming release. As of the, uh, At the time of this recording, it's about two weeks away. How are you feeling? Your second book, soon to be out. <laughs> yeah, uh, excited. Very excited. Um, you know, the, the second book is with the same publisher. So there is some more familiarity with this book than there was my first novel. But getting a book published is a really fun thing and a lot of work. So when you start to approach that point where it's actually going to be made available and it's going to be officially released, uh, it just, it just sends some butterflies through your stomach. So really looking forward to it. There's been a lot of fun interaction with the fans. I know a lot of people have pre-ordered it and it's had some pretty cool reviews that have come through, which have been really exciting, but I know that on uh, August 3rd, it'll feel very, very special. So I'm really looking forward to it. Now, are you the kind of person who, when he gets the notification that he's got a new review, do you cringe like, okay, what's it going to be? Are they going to like it? Or you just dive right in and say, let's check it out, whatever it is, good or bad? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm probably more of a dive right in. Uh, the reviews that have come through have been through industry professionals, Midwest Book Review, and Donovan's bookshelf and a handful of others. And they generally give about a page worth of feedback. So the only way to get a true sense of the book is to just jump in and hope they liked it, which in this case, fortunately they did, but you never know. I mean, I I have a lot of respect for the reviewers because they have to be honest or they lose credibility. So I'm, I'm thankful they liked it, but sometimes you never know which way it's going to go. Exactly. Now, when you were looking over the feedback, did they say anything that that made you think, oh, man, I really should have done that, or that was a much better idea, or why didn't I think of that? No, not really. I I, I mean, in the the course of the feedback that I've gotten, the, the one comment between the first and second book that has really stuck with me was, I, I really wish I could go back and undo this. There is no such thing as an ex-Marine. And, uh, When you use that term in your book and then you have a former Marine who served our country reach out and tell you how much he liked the book, tell you how much he appreciated the story, but gave you the honest feedback that there's no such thing, that sticks with you. And I I still have that email. I still remember talking to that gentleman on the phone. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that no other review or comment that anyone would ever make would, would stick with me more than that one because it was such a personal note. And he said it in the same breath that he was really complimentary of the book. So I wish I could do that one over. <laughs> <laughs> There's always that because that's so true. There is, there is no such thing as an ex-Marine. And, and for those who have served, 
that's really important to them. So I can only imagine the the feeling of oh. Yep, I I just dropped the ball on it. There's no other way to say it. We have a a a, a strong appreciation and love of our armed forces and our family. I have several family members that served in multiple wars, and it was just a total miss by a first-time writer. <laughs> Happens to everyone. Happens to everyone. You know. Um, I think actually, a, I think an almost as bad mistake would be to kill a character off and then bring them back several chapters later. Yeah, I mean, unless you're doing some pretty funky things with the timeline, I, I would think that that'd be right up there. But, uh, but yeah, you know, fortunately, haven't haven't gone down that path just yet. Although you never know, my writing career is young. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Now, at this point in time, we're certainly seeing the return of events. We are seeing announcements that the certain book, um, uh, book expos and festivals are planning an in-person version this year. Are you planning any kind of readings or signings or tours? Uh, I don't have any uh, tours signed up yet. I do have a couple of local bookstore signings lined up. And it's, um, it's in a very uh, controlled environment. Um, masks are required if you're not um, vaccinated and they are practicing capacity constraints, but it'll be a lot of fun to actually be in the bookstore and uh, seeing people face to face. It's been a, it's been a, a very odd and turbulent year for, for everyone in the world. No one has escaped the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. And I know for authors, um, this has been really hard too, because Normally, they would be doing things like signings and readings, but they can't do any of that. I actually talked to one writer shortly after the pandemic hit. He had this huge thing planned for his first book. 200 people were going to attend, and the whole thing had, had to get canceled. Uh, and, of course, like virtual events have replaced that. So my question to you is, you know, as you are like, you know, planning things like, okay, it's done. This is when it's going to be hitting the, the bookshelves. Were you kind of keeping an eye on the numbers to see if an in-person event was going to be possible? Yeah, most definitely. You know, the, the tough part about it is everything is so state by state, even town by town, you know, so it's hard to say across the board that, you know, things are either open or they're not open. We have family members that live in other states where the, the level of access and things like this is far greater than where I live. I live in the Chicago area. Uh, I would say that in the Chicago area, there's a, a much more um, aggressive focus on controlling the spread of the virus and kind of limiting certain access points. So, uh, but just in the past month or so, things have started to open up into what they call phase five. And uh, it's exciting to see in, in the area where we live, things starting to open up. But the thing that, that we have to remember, not to get on the, the COVID discussion, but it certainly isn't like that around the world. I mean, I just earlier today, I had a conversation with a gentleman in Australia that is now back in lockdown. And in Brazil and India, they're still seeing very high infection rates. The variant is making its way across uh, international borders. So, um, you know, we're certainly not out of the woods. And when it comes to events and things like that, the protocols, not only from country to country, but state to state and town to town are very different. Just, just a week ago, I was having a conversation with some gentlemen from the UAE in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And even between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, 
the protocol for entering the country is totally different. It's actually uh, an interesting idea. If you were trying to write a novel now, would you want to, should you incorporate everything that's going on with the pandemic or should you try to bring people back to the pre-pandemic world? Mm -hmm. It's it's an interesting question. I'm sure a lot of thriller writers in particular are kind of pondering right now. I got to say, I wouldn't want to read a book that had a pandemic in it at this point. It's just, it's, too close to home, and frankly, it's too, I think, too close to home, but also, I think it's kind of taking advantage. Like, yeah. this is a very real real tragedy, and you're writing a story about it to make to make, make some bucks. I, frankly, would not read it. Yeah. But my- no, you're so, you're so right. But what I meant, just to clarify, is, you know, should your character have to wear a mask? Or if your character was going to rob a bank and put a mask on... Would it not be unusual? Certainly, I think anyone that would try to write a story kind of taking advantage, for lack of a better word, of the pandemic would be in poor taste. But the question becomes, okay, as you're adding details to scenes and you know, providing descriptions, are there tapes on the, on the floor separating people at six feet apart or are there not? Uh, that's just kind of, because you want to be, you want to be realistic too. I mean, you want to present something that people will be able to relate to. Uh, but I'm with you. I, I kind of prefer to just say, you know what? Um, I don't have any references. My publisher actually asked me about that in the final edits of, you know, should we include some things that make reference to the state of the world today? And I ultimately decided I didn't want to do that because I think people just want to read good books and be entertained. They don't want to have to worry about putting the mask on, you know, as they read a book. Uh, they should just be fun. That's my opinion, anyway. Oh, exactly, exactly. And I think that um, the thing about books, especially fiction books, is they're meant to be escapism. They're not meant to be reminders of exactly what you had to deal with today. Like, oh, so-and-so character put his mask on before he he entered the the grocery store. You think, hey, I did that today, too. Great. That's right. That's right. Nail on the head. You want to kind of live vicariously through the the guy that's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And when he has to put the mask on, just like you, maybe it takes away from a little bit of his, uh, some of his flash. So I'm, I'm with you on that. It makes a lot of sense. Okay. (laughs) So let's talk about your new book, the silent Cardinal, the second in your Ben Siebert series. This one of course picks up with the main character that you created for the first book, the Hubley case. Where is Ben as a person in this book? Are, are we picking up right after the second book or, or has some time passed? Uh, it's been two years since the first book ended. And uh, Ben, the protagonist, is very happy to not be involved with any FBI or CIA uh, cooperative investigation. He feels that he did his part a couple of years ago in preventing a cyber attack on the U.S., and he's very happy to just go spend time with his son and uh, do some charity work, Uh, but he gets pulled into a situation uh, because they need his help. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what a complicated story you've created here, and I mean that in a very, very good way. I'm not trying to be critical at all. Um, (laughs) The story begins with, uh, with a terrorist seizing a transportation center in Chicago along, along with 10,000 commuters. Um, yeah. tell, they tell the authorities there are going to be some pretty serious consequences unless the FBI kills this kind of like nobody attorney named William T. Noble. 
And Ben, yeah. who, like you said, just kind of wants to chill out, be with his kid, gets dragged into this, and actually has to take this guy hostage just to find out what's going on. And I love, and I actually remember that from the first book, too. You, you, you wove a very complicated story. Was this what you first came up with, or did you go through a lot of different versions before you said, yep, this is it, we're set? Well, I really appreciate the compliment, Max. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and I will say that, that it's, it's sometimes I can take it too far, right? If, it's, if it gets too complicated, you have to kind of bring it back. But, um, but no, when, when this story started, I knew that the Ben character, uh, I didn't actually intend on writing a sequel. Uh, I had another draft of a completely different story, but I, I got a lot of letters from some fans and family and friends and people that I really liked. And they wanted to know, are these characters going to be back? And so I, I just said, well, all right, if I was, if I was going to do this, what would make sense? You know, and it, at the end of the first book, if you haven't read it, it's very clear that Ben wants nothing to do with any of this FBI, CIA type stuff. So I knew that if it was going to be a sequel, there would have to be a scenario where he would be pulled into it. So I kind of started with the premise that he would be very reluctant. And then I asked the question, well, what would, what would pull him in? And how would he get fully engaged to the point where he's truly at the center of the whole story? And it, it all kind of flew backwards from there. It started with that, with that premise of, you know, what would this guy, what would compel this guy to get involved after what he went through? And, and from there, the plot just kind of grew. Okay. So was the Hubley case meant to be a one-off? Oh, yeah. I, I, had, I had no intention of making it a sequel. Now, that's not to say that I would have been opposed to it at the time, but it never even entered my thought process. I, I, I thought that this was a one-time story, one-time characters, and uh, it was actually the, the, you know, some, some encouraging fans and some notes that I got that kind of got me thinking, well, does it make sense to bring these characters back? That's so cool that the fans more or less spawned a second book that kind of like saved Ben from like writer's oblivion, as it were. Yeah, I, I thought so. I mean, it was, you know, it was it was humbling that that some of them, you know, you know, liked the character enough that they wanted because. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not I, my my characters aren't at the Mitch Rap level yet, right? Kyle Mills, a fantastic writer. You know, Michael Connolly, fantastic writer with Harry Bosch. The the books hadn't gotten that widespread, so to get you know a couple hundred letters from people that had read the book and had said, "Hey, I'd love to see more of this guy and more of Tom," and uh, it was it was it was very exciting, and it and it and I'm really glad it happened. Because it was a lot of fun bringing those characters back. And, and the fact that I hadn't planned on doing so in the first place made me all the more appreciative that the fans did write in. Because it was a lot of fun to write those characters again. Nice, nice. Did they give you any ideas that wound up being used in the book? Yeah, the, uh, the, only, the, the main idea that there were actually several, several concepts thrown out there. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? And a lot of them were from, you know, buddies of mine that, you know, I love them to death, but they're not necessarily storytellers or writers. And, uh, but there were a couple of compelling ideas and, and really the, the one that kind of sort of made it into the book was there was a lot of interest in the relationship aspect. Um, 
between the two between the two main characters. And so uh, I wound up I wound up kind of sidestepping it where you find out that in the two years that have passed, Nikki and Ben had actually dated and gotten engaged and were no longer together when the second book started. Uh, I didn't have that idea until I started to think through, okay, how can we further pull Ben into this? Um, so that kind of came from the fans. Man, heartbreaker. Nikki and Ben aren't together anymore? Jeez. <laughs> Well, you know, they can always rekindle in the story. That might be an element of it. You never know. Exactly. Or or you or you can do a third book and Nikki can be the surprise villain. You know, I I wouldn't put anything past at this point. You never know. It's uh just kind of let things go where they go and uh have some fun with these characters. But it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to just to see that people really care, mm-hmm. you know, that they like these characters and they wanted to read more about them that was exciting it was mm-hmm. encouraging and given the given the complexity of this story did you have to really plan this out or were you able to just kind of wing it and make it work you know i have read stories about authors who can just sit down with a blank sheet of paper and write an awesome thriller or mystery novel and uh, all i can say to them is i tip my cap to you and i'm a little bit jealous um because I've tried that and I'm not very good at it. Uh, I end up backtracking. I end up getting characters confused. Did this guy go there? Who is she? So I kind of learned the hard way that particularly for this genre of book, um, I have to outline it out. Now I try to give myself as much leeway as possible from chapter to chapter but I have learned through practice that I, I really need to know the beginning, the middle, and the end before I start to write the book. Because even if I have 70% of an outline done, I will find a way to make more work for myself and confuse things up if I don't finish the outline before I start writing. Uh, it, it never fails. So I, I hold myself accountable to that. I get a, a full outline with at least the major twists and turns. And then from there, that's where the fun comes in of, okay, now that you've got your kind of boundaries, go right up against the edge as much as possible and have some fun with it. Now, let's talk a bit more about Ben's character. As you mentioned, um, he did uh, serve as a Marine. Were you able to fine-tune the character a little more for the second book? No, I I think... You know, one one of the one of the reviews that I actually got said it pretty well. You get to know Ben a little bit more on a personal level in this book. Um, you learn a lot about his backstory in the first novel, and you learn a lot about his professional career that led to where he is now. And you learn a little bit about how his how his son came to be with him. But that's that's about it. In this second story, because his his family is threatened, you find out quite a bit more about what really drives him personally. And it actually serves as an unleashing mechanism, a catalyst, if you will, to see the, 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 the determination of his professional side. Because in the first book, um, it kind of touches on it a little bit. The second one really kind of hones in on who he is as a character and what his deepest, darkest fears are. Can we get a hint about that one? I'm really curious as to his uh, deepest, darkest fears. 
Yeah, no, I mean, certainly that, you know, at a, at a very high level, um, he gets, he gets called in to help with this request following the terrorist, um, incident at uh, the transportation center. And he kind of reluctantly agrees to do what he can, but he, he doesn't really have both feet in because he doesn't see how he can truly help. And, and then, um, his son gets kidnapped. And suddenly the, the terrorists who perpetrated the plot at the transportation center are reaching out to him directly and saying, now that we know you're involved, we're going to put this on you. This guy either gets killed or your son does. And when he's faced with that series of choices, that's what leads to the sort of the, the difficult question of, of what would you do? You know, I, my, my goal in writing that particular twist of the plot was to get people to think, okay, if I were Ben, what would I do? Um, you know, and, and try to answer honestly, do they agree with his approach? Because his approach would not be for everyone. Um, he's a very pragmatic guy and he goes about it the most direct way. I think he goes about it the way a lot of former special forces guys might. But it's not the approach. It's not a truly black and white world that he's in. And um, so I tried to get the reader, I tried to get into the reader's mind a little bit to say, okay, you know, put yourself in this shoes. You have one son, your wife has passed on. This happens. What would you do? What would you legitimately do? And, um, and that's a part of the fun is to try to just get people to think about those types of situations. How do you get twisted? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, how do you get into the head of a character like this, given that the two of you have very different backgrounds? That's a great question, Max. That's a fantastic question. I know a few people that are very similar to the Ben character, and I think I draw on their experiences. Um, and I've also tried to incorporate some personal traits that I identify with very much that help me relate more to him. But you're right. I mean, my background is not in the military. My background is not as a special forces guy or as a tactical expert. And my, my personal life is very different from his. So writing him was sort of a combination of um, experiences that I've had, people that I know, um, and pulling a little bit from the whole span of my experiences but then also trying to tie it back to, you know, what's most important to him, his core values are actually fairly similar to mine. And so I tried to think about it along the lines of, okay, you know, can I pull enough from over here and over here and then mix it with my own personality and create a realistic character that would be interesting? Because you probably wouldn't want to read a book about me. You know, I'm not all that exciting, but, uh, but some of the traits that feed into the situations that he's that he's in, uh, that could that could make for some interesting reading, I thought. Okay, all right. Now you mentioned to me that uh, your first book won uh, the New York City Big Book Award and the Best Book Award for Best Thriller. That's am amazing, I think, especially for for, uh, for a debut author. So, um, uh, congrats to you, Justin. But oh, thank you. G winning those awards, did that really? Make you think, okay, I've got to do even even better this time because now I am in a, a multiple award winning author. 
I don't think so. I don't, I don't feel that it added any extra layer of pressure. Um, it, it was more just the pressure of writing the second book in general. I, you know, I read somewhere, I think it was Tom Clancy who said that the, the, the hardest book to write is the second published book. Um, because when you write your first one, no one knows what you're doing. You know, your family doesn't know. No one's asking you anything. You just take your time. And, and when you write your second one, if there's been, you know, if you were successful in writing the first one and getting it out there and some people liked it, all of a sudden there's, there's a little bit of inherent pressure. And I, I kind of found that to be true. I had a little bit of writer's block, if you want to call it that, during stints of writing, you know, outlining the second book. But I don't, I don't think the awards necessarily added that much. They were just a real honor. And I appreciate you saying that because it was, it was very exciting when, when those awards came in and I found out about that and uh, you know, it was a, it was a real honor. So certainly I hope that the, the silent Cardinal lives up to, uh, to the, the first one's uh, caliber. Hmm. Given that you had never really intended to do a second book, did you have to dive back into it to sort of like, remember, okay, this is Ben, this is who he is, this is what he's been through before you actually could write the second book? Uh, you asked some great questions. Uh, and, and, and the answer is absolutely. Uh, I actually read the book from cover to cover, and then I reread all of the outlines and notes. Um, because there was a lot in the first book that I wound up cutting that was still integral to who the character was in my mind. And I felt that to really get back into those characters, not just Ben, but also Nikki and Tom and, and even his son, Joe Lexa, um, I needed to get reacquainted with them a little bit because I, like I said, I had had a, a totally different story about 85, 90% of the way through that was ready to go. And so I, I wouldn't say I'd forgotten about them, but I certainly didn't remember all the details. So when I decided to sort of give that a shot and, got some support from the publisher to do so. Um, I definitely had to dive right back in and say, all right, you know, who, who are these people? And, and, and if I had not felt, this is going to sound kind of weird, but if I had not felt a chemistry with them, the, the second time, like, as I did that, I wouldn't have written the book. I, I remember, I remember distinctly saying, if I don't fall in love with these characters, I'm not going to do a sequel because you have to really like the characters that you're writing. And, uh, but, but after reading the book and reading the outline notes and everything else, I, I, I did. And so I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. Why didn't you want to do another book? Like a, a sequel? Yeah. Yeah. It just never crossed my mind. Uh, I, you know, it, it's not that I was against it. It wasn't a conscious decision not to. Um, I just, I just never really even thought about it. I had, by the time the first book got published, um, you know, I was I was already putting together the ideas for the second one, and well, which which wound up not being the second one, right? But um, it wasn't it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. I just honestly hadn't really thought about it. hadn't thought about making it a series. But. It's, it's funny because like usually when someone puts out like a book like this, it's sort of destined to become a series. It's usually expected, okay, there will be a second one and third one. And like 20 later, you're still writing them. So it's interesting that you want to be like, nope, one and done. That's it. We're moving on to the, to the next thing. 
I want to ask about villains because in these kinds of books, the villains are usually some sort of secret cabal or a terrorist organization. And I think there's sometimes a feeling of been there, done that. We see it so many different books, movies, TV shows, video games these days. How do you make your villain unique or is that even possible? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's another great question. What, what I would say, you know, from my approach is um, <clears throat> villain is, is a term that's in the eye of the beholder. So what I try, what I try to think about is I wanted to create a, a, an antagonist who in his own mind was doing the right thing. And, and even from a certain way of thinking, was doing the right thing. You know, this the, the true villain in this story, and, and there are some twists and turns and who, who did what and all that other stuff. But the goal was, was kind of to create a scenario where, yes, you know, the average Joe would, you know, would never condone or do what this guy did, but understands how someone could. I, I don't know how else to put it. Like it wouldn't, you wouldn't, um, personalize it to yourself most people wouldn't picture themselves threatening to to you know blow up a building even if they never intended to but when you find out why he did it and what his ultimate objective was my hope is that <clears throat> that the readers say something like well i would never do that but you know i i can see it i can see that with the with a certain type of type of character i can see it and um you know, the, the, the first book, um, the villain was probably a little more dangerous words here, but stereotypical in certain, in this certain genre, or a little bit more, a little bit more kind of what you would expect. Um, if you were reading this type of a story in this type of a context, um, based on all the other books that are out there and, and not that, that it's predictable, but, the second book, I think, kind of takes a, a strong departure from that and, and tries to throw a little bit more, a little bit more, it, it's all in your perspective. Is this guy a villain or is he trying to do the right thing? Um, and I think in the first book, it was much more black and white. Clearly, this is a villain. This is a bad guy who's doing these bad things. There's no justification for it whatsoever. In this book, I think it's possible that some people would come away with even a little bit of, you know, ambiguity. And that was something that actually came up in the first round of edits with the book was, you know, should it be more black and white? There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. And I wound up saying, you know, I, I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear who the good guy is. It's pretty clear who the bad guy is. Uh, but adding a layer of depth to the bad guy to kind of explain where he or she is coming from. I, I think that that could make for interesting reading. So that's how I tried to approach it. Okay. Long-winded answer. Given that, do you think you would have some sympathy for the villain? I have, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I have some sympathy for why the villain felt the way he or she did. Um, it does not in any way excuse what happens throughout the story. It doesn't, it's not justified. Um, but I, but I think that it certainly offers a, a layer of, of complexity to the whole good guy versus bad guy thing. 
you're asking these great questions. I don't want to give away too, too much. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we got to be careful. We can't be, uh, be giving away spoilers here. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the editing process, because I know you work with a publisher for this. What kind of feedback did they, did they give you for this book? And were there any points that you kind of maybe like butted heads about what to change? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, my credit to Moonshine Cove and the entire staff there. I mean, they, they really did make the book better. And I'm thankful for the partnership. Um, it's been really great. And it may very well continue into the future. Um, but the editing process is hard. It's hard because you've spent, you know, however long you've spent, in my case, just under a year drafting this book and putting putting your own blood, sweat and tears into it, doing your own editing and your focus groups. And then you hand it off and you get it back and it's it's covered in a lot of red. And so you go through sort of chapter by chapter and. Um, you know, my father-in-law put it best, you know, pick your battles. Right. And some of them are, some of them are, well, you know, I don't necessarily agree, but I can see where they're coming from and I don't really care all that much, but there were definitely a couple that I, I said, no, I, I, I really have to, I have to stick to my guns on this. This is really important. It's gotta, it's gotta be this way. And, you know, you hope, and, and fortunately in my case, this, this, this panned out this way, but you hope that you do that seldom enough that when you do pull out that card, it, it, it's really received with understanding. You know, if you try to, if you try to fight for every single change that you want, as opposed to the editor, then, you know, you're, you're crying wolf too often. Right. But, but if you, if you reserve it for those few instances where it really, really matters, my experience has, has been, they say, well, you know, he's, he's been pretty flexible in these other areas. Um, you know, let's, let's give him this one. At least that's what they say. <laughs> you know, this reminds me. So my day job is working as a news editor and this reminds me of a time I had a prospective freelancer. He did a story for me. I made some changes and his exact words were, I don't think my work needs to be changed. And I thought, Oh, we're off to a bad start with this guy. And, and yeah, Unsurprising, yeah, that, and, and unsurprisingly, he was very, very short-lived working for me. I imagine that that's also the case for the publishers when they get a writer who says, really, I don't want you to change anything. They probably think, oh, crap, this is going to be a slog. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that anyone who, who, would, who would say, I think this is perfect just the way it is, they're probably kidding themselves. Um, I, I will say that in my case, um, the majority of the edits that were suggested, I agreed with. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't this constant bloodbath of a difference of opinion. Um, you know, there were some grammatical catches that are pretty black and white. You know, there's a right way to write it in, a, in an incorrect way. But even in some of the story changes, um, you know, my, my, my first draft is far from perfect. The published book is far from perfect. You know, sure as we're sitting here, someone's going to pick it up. And they're going to read it on August 3rd and they're going to find some errors or they're going to find some things that aren't perfect. So I think if you're going in position is this is perfect. It doesn't need any change. Um, I think that that would be hard to work with for just about anyone who's on the reasonable side. And I think the final version is going to be lacking significantly. I've actually read some books where they had no editor and you could tell 
you could tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's not personal. It should all be about the book, right? And if it makes it a better product, you should just say thank you. Um, but, but you know, I, I've, I've interacted with a few authors who are much more reluctant than I am to accept change in their story and, you know, their artistic integrity. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of merit to that. But at the end of the day, you're writing for an audience that wants to be entertained. And if there are changes to the story that make it better for that purpose, then I think you got to be open-minded about it, particularly in today's market. I mean, the, the book writing world has changed, right? So um, there's lots of different stories out there. There's lots of ways to spend your time. You really have to make that product um, as good as possible for your readers. I mean, you, you owe that to them. Exactly, exactly. I want to ask about making art during COVID. Certainly, this has been a hard time. I've talked to some writers and musicians who said that they had a hard time just getting anything done. How did this impact you? Did you have some points where you just couldn't write anything? No, uh, not not really. I, I kept pretty busy during COVID. Uh, I was working remotely in my day job, and I actually had added, you know, a couple of hours a day to my day talking about COVID, you know, interacting with customers and salespeople and manufacturing. And um, so I was keeping very busy during the day and I kind of stuck to my schedule of writing uh, in the mornings. Uh, the, really the, the harder part about it was, was trying, to, trying to predict where this was going because people were not buying books during the heat of the pandemic. I mean, you would, you know, you, there's a, there's a line of thinking that says, well, they would be taking off because they're at home. They can't go anywhere. Right. Actually that, that didn't play out. Um, people wound up going to Netflix and Disney and streaming things, but they didn't necessarily go buy more books. So I actually, you know, this, this book was, was, you know, drafted and ready prior to COVID. And we kind of we kind of held off because we weren't sure where the world was going to go, and then it turned into the editing exercise and everything else. So it was more just the state of the world in general and what was going to happen. And you know, it's just so tragic. You know, you you pick up a newspaper and you read about the number of infections, the number of people passing away, and um, you know that was the far greater impact than you know than than being you know, isolated or working at home and, and not having the motivation to write. It was more just a wonder of, well, what's going to happen, uh, which, which everybody had. Mm. I mean, you know, can you imagine, can you imagine going back in a time machine to yourself in December, 2019, January, 2020, and telling yourself that this is what the next year is going to look like? You wouldn't even believe it. I mean, it was hard to grasp. No, no. I mean, I, I mean, I can recall when this first happened, a lot of folks were like, oh, it'll be over in a month or two. No big deal. Like, we'll lose April. We'll lose May. But we'll we'll, we'll, we'll all, like, see each other in June. And that's like, yeah, well, that's kind of accurate. Just off by a year. But, you know. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it, it, it really, you know, I mean, the hope is, right, that 100 years from now, they look at it the way we look at the, at the flu pandemic of 1918, where it's a thing of the past that didn't make its way forward. But, um, you know, back in 2020, it's, 
it's, yeah, actually I have a very interesting story about that. So believe it or not, I found myself in a situation where I had to fly to Florida from Chicago in March of 2020. And I, you know, I had actually done the math and well, if I drove, what would the exposure be? If I flew, what would the exposure be? So I'm at the airport in uh, O'Hare and this flight attendant comes up to me and says, are you Justin? And I said, yeah. You know, like, how, how do you know that? Uh, I was the only passenger on the plane and they wanted to make sure I was not symptomatic. They had six uh, flight attendants and pilots that were deadheading. It's the only reason that the flight wasn't canceled, but a big seven, I don't know what it was, 757, a giant plane. And there were only seven people on the plane. I was the only passenger on that airplane. Uh, that was a little eerie. Did they at least put you in uh, first class? They did. They said, pick your seat. Yeah, exactly. They said, Good. Hey, hey. They, they, they actually spaced us all out, you know, and, uh, but it was just, it was just so strange because I think there were, you know, 30 or 40 rows on the airplane. And I actually took a picture, you know, there was, there were seven people sitting in the whole plane. That was it. Well, at least he got to fly, um, uh, first class. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And of course, at that time, you know, a first class ticket, I think only cost $40. Yeah, I mean, insanely cheap. the cost of the, the, the cost of the planes back then was, was ridiculously low, of course, because no one was flying. I mean, I didn't want to fly. I was kind of in a situation where I needed to for some family stuff, but it turned into, uh, you know, th- this was before masks were even around. I had a plumber's mask on just to try to be safe. This, there were no masks. Nobody was walking around in a mask at this time. And they saw me standing there and they said, you know, we just want to make sure that you're not showing symptoms because we're all getting ready to fly on a plane and go to Florida. We want to make sure you're not sick. So crazy story. Crazy story. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like, like part of me wishes I could have taken advantage of that. Because like so many folks said, oh, yeah, you know, I flew from like, you know, Boston to California, you know, like 70 bucks round trip. But I also would not have gotten onto a plane for any amount of money back then. You'd just right. no way, right. no way in hell. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just, you know, like I said, in my case, I, I, I could see scenarios where for family reasons, you, you feel you have to. But generally speaking, it's not doesn't matter what the price is. No one was flying just to fly. You know, oh. it, it just. It was not something you wanted to do. <laughs> I know a guy who actually flew from Boston to Florida to see a movie, okay? I thought, you fucking idiot. You I, gotta, I took the words right out of my you mouth. You've got to be the, <laughs> the dumbest, dumbest, dumb person I've ever seen to do something that's pathologically stupid. For a movie. For a yeah, movie. No, for, I, for, a, for a movie that wasn't even that good. Yeah, anyway, well said. Yeah, uh, back on track though. Let's get uh, let's get uh, back to the book. Of course, second one coming out in just a couple of weeks. Do you think there will be a third? Boy, I don't know. It's it's not it's not in the works right now. There's not a plan for it. Um, but there wasn't a plan for a second one either. So I, I really don't know. So all you fans, get to writing right now. You go to jleethrillers.com, Mesh this guy. Tell him we want a third book. Because you know if it'll they happen. Did that there might have to be. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I like though that you're receptive to the fan input. That they can have some say, or at least have some input into 
what happens, even like how it happens. It's nice. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, like I said, if, 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 if the characters weren't feeling right, or if the story wasn't there, I wasn't going to force it. Right. I wasn't going to do it. You know, if, if I wasn't going to really truly enjoy it, but you're writing for fans, right? I mean, the, the whole idea is that somebody's gonna, you know, spend some money and give some time of their life to read a story that you write. And if you're hearing from people that, that they love to, you know, read about certain characters, then um, you're certainly not obligated to, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's just listening to what people say. But like I said, I mean, all that, all that said, if I had gone back through the Hubley case notes and I had reread that book and I hadn't really re-engaged with those characters, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it just because the fans did. But hey, if, if you get a good idea, why not listen? There you go. So what is next for you? So, uh, you know, the first step is I'm just very excited for August 3rd. Um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, uh, it's been it's been announced now for about two months or so, two or three months that it's been sort of out there. It's been on the website. There have been a couple of emails and social media stuff, but there's there's nothing quite like the actual day. And so I'm really just excited and looking forward to August 3rd. And um, hoping that people enjoy the story, that that they connect with it, and that you know it, it's something that that they found to be worth their time, worth their money. Um, and beyond that, I mean, I had a plan after the first one, and I wound up taking a different path. But I, I do have another story that I'm actively uh, working on right now, and the plan in my head has been to keep writing. I love writing. I think it's one of the most enjoyable ways to spend a day. And um, it's a lot of fun for me. So I would love to keep doing this and and keep writing books and keep chatting with you. Hey, I'm up for that. I'm up for that. <laughs> uh, great talking to you as always. And for the folks at home, you go to jleethrillers.com for more information. Uh, if you haven't done so, you can pre-order your copy. If it's past August 3rd, order your copy. I get the first ones. You get the full Ben Siebert experience. I'm sure we'll be talking again very soon. Max, I thank you so much for having me. Really appreciated. Had an absolutely fantastic time talking with you. This is your girl, Lady V, host of the V Line, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. Picture this you finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain, hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, Cover Villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details, and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. And that brings this episode to a close. Huge thanks to Jay Lee for joining me. And don't forget to pick up his new book, The Silent Cardinal, available August 3rd wherever you get your books. And if you like audiobooks, and these days, who doesn't? The audiobook that I narrated 
did the voices for and produced for Matt Ward's book, Wolfish, is now available wherever you get your audiobooks. And you can catch this podcast on all major streaming platforms. Follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. And get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com. As always, keep those ears open. <laughs>